Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 20. Second Kings chapter 20. This morning we are focusing on verses 12 through 21. This is God's powerful word, his transformative word, the word that brings life. Please give it your full attention. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, the king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh his son reigned in his place. Well, with this passage, we come to the end of our series of studies in the life of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah of Judah, one of the greatest leaders of history. Hezekiah came to the throne in Judah during a time of incredible spiritual apostasy and political weakness about 700 years before the time of Christ. Hezekiah led one of the greatest revivals and reformations, spiritually speaking, in the history of the world. He cleaned the temple of all, not only of the filth and grime, but of the spiritual filth and grime that had built it for generations. And he led the people back to biblical worship of the biblical God. You'll remember, if you've been with us for these last couple of months, that at the beginning of the historical account of Hezekiah's life, it gives a description of him that is probably one of the most, if not the most, laudatory descriptions of any leader in Scripture outside of Christ. 
This is how it reads back in chapter 18, beginning in verse 3. It says, And Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. Skipping down to verse 5. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. We've said that many times in these studies these last couple of months. How many times that idea has either been clearly stated or implied that this is a man after God's own heart, a God who trusted in the Lord in an exceptional way. He trusted in the Lord. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord when there were 186,000 Assyrian soldiers surrounding the city of Jerusalem. And he was powerless to stand against them. He trusted in the Lord. He got on his face before the Lord. He went to the temple. He worshipped. He prayed. And he sought the word of the Lord. And the Lord spoke. And the Lord delivered him and Jerusalem from the Assyrians. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord when he faced a terminal disease, told that he was about to die. He got on his face before the Lord, and he sought the word of the Lord, and the prophet Isaiah came to him and said the Lord would heal him and give him 15 more years. He was a man who trusted in the Lord. But then we come to this last account in the historical record of his life. And it ends, his whole life story ends with this disturbing account. A time when his pride and his foolishness led not only to a great failing on his part, but actually becomes the trigger for God's great judgment. The judgment that was promised from early in biblical history that one day God's people would be taken away and scattered to the nations that there would be a great captivity because of generation upon generation of rebellion and idolatry and apostasy. It's interesting, this great man, Hezekiah, it's his sin, it's his pride, it's his foolishness that draws the final word, so the uh, straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. And the Lord sent the prophet Isaiah to say that judgment was coming, that judgment was coming. We live in a cynical and disillusioned age when it comes to our leaders, don't we? We expect our leaders to be immoral. We expect our leaders to be corrupt. It wasn't always this way. My wife and I had a chance a week before last to take a week's vacation, and we went down to Virginia. We stopped off at Mount Vernon. And visited that beautiful place that George Washington established on the Potomac River. Learned about his life in great detail. And then we left there and went to Colonial Williamsburg. And learned about how our forefathers established that community that really was the precursor to the civilization that we live in now. And I was struck by... The tone, the nature, the focus, the emphasis of the presentations 
How different they must be today from what I remember of how I was taught these things as a grade school child. Because I would say at least half of the emphasis, maybe more than that, on these great men's lives, men's like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, more than half of the emphasis was on their failings. And particularly the sin of owning slaves. It permeated everything that we saw and learned about during our time in those two places. The emphasis was on their corruption. The emphasis was on their sin. How different that was from when I was a kid. When we were taught about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, these guys were almost superhuman in their, their courage and their, their integrity and their leadership ability. You know what? We need both. When we look at our leaders, we need a balanced view of them. We need to not be naive about what their nature really was and what their failings were, but we also need to praise God for the strength and the character that they showed, the courage they showed in so many ways. I've been naive about many, many heroes in my life. I've been let down by many of my heroes, politicians, sports figures, Entertainers, musicians, actors, again and again and again. Over decades of my life, I've been let down. I've been disappointed. And you get cynical. Probably the most damaging ones, and absolutely the most damaging ones, have been my spiritual heroes. Celebrity pastors. Theologians. Who I admired, who I learned from, who whom I tried to imitate, who had, have had major failings, falling into immorality, or in some ways even worse, heresy. And again, you end up disillusioned. I've had friends in the ministry that I've worked alongside of, pastors, that I trusted, that I thought so well of, that have had major failings. After a scandal, we'll often hear people say, he couldn't handle success. Success really changed him or changed her. Well, just as suffering, we talk about this all the time, especially in our theological circles, suffering is often or it is always a test from the Lord. Suffering is meant to test us, to teach us, to discipline us draw us to the Lord. But we never think about success that way, do we? Success, we will see in this passage, is a test from the Lord. It's a burden in a real way to be successful, to be popular, to be famous, to be powerful in this world. Hezekiah was tested with success. That's what we see in this passage. He was tested with success. We see in verse 12 that this news about this miraculous healing that he had had traveled all the way to the empire of Babylon. Now, it would have taken a while in that day. I mean, in this day of satellites and cable news, it would have been instantaneous. But it had to take a long time for the word to finally get over to the distant land of Babylon, the empire of Babylon, to say that the king of Judah had experienced not just a tremendous healing, but a miraculous healing. And it's interesting, we'll see in several places that 
There's a parallel account in 2 Chronicles, in chapter 32 thereabout, a parallel account of the same incidents in the history of the life of Hezekiah. And in that account, they make it clear that it wasn't just his miraculous healing, but you remember when he was healed, he was given, a, before he was healed, he was given a sign from the Lord. And that sign was that the shadow would go on the palace steps would go in reverse. And we talked at the time, we don't know whether that was a localized event. We don't know if that was something that maybe the, even the leaders of Babylon would have been able to see. We don't know what the nature of that miracle was. We just know what the consequence of it was. But they heard about it. And so what happens is that this group of, of uh, ambassadors or envoys from Babylon are sent by the king of Babylon to Hezekiah with a large gift and letters because of his great healing and this great sign that was done. And as you read that, you think, wow, what a great guy the king of Babylon was. So kind and caring, compassionate, to send a card, to send a letter, to send a gift. Well, that kind of thing happened all the time between kings back in those days. They seized upon any opportunity to send a gift and a letter to a king. And, you know, if you remember what the political situation was in that day, you basically, the great world empire of the time was this evil empire of Assyria. But then, of course, there was the up-and-coming, once had been an up-and-coming empire of Babylon, and, and then also the great historic empire of Egypt. And so those were the big players in that part of the world and that part of civilized history. And what would happen is they would always be courting or sometimes forcefully or harshly, but often in kind, supposedly kind terms, trying to court all these little nations. And of course, Judah was a tiny little nation, but trying to court them to try to bring them into the alliance, to bring them into the empire. And that's what this is all about. Monarchs and prime ministers and presidents still do that kind of thing. You know that. It may be hard to imagine, maybe hard to believe, but sometimes political leaders will receive a large gift from people hoping that they would get some favor, that the person who gave the gift would get some favor in the future. That happens. I hate to break your, disillusion you, but it does happen. It still happens. And when it happens within the government, they call it pay to play, but it happens between governments as well. The king of Babylon wanted Hezekiah and Judah to be his ally. And in verse 13, we see how Hezekiah responded to that. He takes the envoys for a tour of the city, shows them the palace that he had built in all of its splendor, showed them all of the large storehouses full of not only grain and showing them all of his livestock, but also showing them all of his, his riches, and particularly it mentions he showed them his armory to show that he has weapons, shields, that he can contribute to any potential alliance. It's interesting, we talked about the parallel passage over in 2 Chronicles 32. Let me read to you a little more detailed description of the wealth and riches of Hezekiah that's there in the same, covering the same period. It says in verse 27 of 2 Chronicles 32, And Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, and for all kinds of costly vessels, storehouses also for the yield of grain and wine and oil, and stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds. He likewise provided cities for himself and flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great possessions. 
This same Hezekiah closed the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them down the west side of the city of David, and Hezekiah prospered in all of his works. It's interesting, it makes mention there, among all of his wealth and accomplishments, it mentions that he shut up the spring of the waters of Gihon and directed the water, and we know from other parts of scripture and from history, what he did is he, he shut it up so that any enemies surrounding the city would have no access to the water, but then he directed the water through a tunnel under the walls of the city of Jerusalem into the pool of Siloam so that the city, if it was under siege, would have a constant supply of water while the enemies around the city wouldn't have any water available, readily available to them. It was a brilliant strategic military move, but it was also one of the great uh, engineering uh, feats of the ancient world. There's actually, they found it. If you go to Jerusalem, you can actually go through the tunnel today. It's there. And they actually found the original inscription that was put on it. And that inscription talks about how the workers started inside the city and started the tunnel on that end, and they had workers outside the city and started on that end, and they dug underneath the walls, and they met in the middle. We could do that easily today with our technology. Can you imagine what a feat that was in that day? And what a brilliant addition to the arsenal of the city of Jerusalem. So all this to say that Hezekiah was a very impressive leader. He had great wealth. And all he wanted to do was show the people how great he was. These envoys, he wanted them to be impressed with what he had, what he had to offer to the alliance, the military strength, the strategy. He wanted to impress them. The same thing happened to Hezekiah. Actually, Hezekiah's great-grandfather, his name was King Uzziah. There's one very telling description in the scriptures about King Uzziah, who was also a great leader in many ways. But this is what it says in 2 Chronicles 26, verses 15 and 16. Uzziah was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. Hezekiah was proud to show off his accomplishments and prosperity in the hopes of not only impressing these envoys, but of being gained into an alliance with this pagan country of Babylon. He basked in the approval of these influential leaders of the world. He's thinking to himself, imagine Just imagine it. The king of Babylon wants to be my ally. You know, the approval of those that are considered popular and influential in this world, it is intoxicating. I don't know if you've ever gotten a taste of that in any part of your life, but it is intoxicating. As many of you know, I I work at the stadium during the football games at Beaver Stadium, and I see this the whole time I'm there on game day from when I'm there to when I leave, and I watch the fans come in. And There's certain parts of the whole uh, event where fans actually have some close contact with the players. And You know what amazes me? It, it's, it's amazingly consistent, and I, I marvel at it, and I'm saddened by it, is how the fans are so longing for some kind of contact with these powerful, prosperous athletes. How many of these fans just would give their left arm to be able to say, I'm a friend of Coach Franklin? 
how they fall over themselves and even hurt each other to try to get close so that they can shake hands with Saquon Barkley. A 19-year-old kid, just shortly out of high school, and, and you've got grown fans falling over themselves just so they can touch him. I mean, I'll watch after the game as they run through the tunnel back to the locker room, and they'll take off. They're dirty, grimy, sweaty. They'll take off their gloves. They'll take off their, their uh, sleeves on their arms, and they'll toss them into the crowd, and people treat them like they're gold. These sweaty, yucky, smelly things. <laughs> because they want contact with the popular, the famous, the powerful. I have to admit, Coach Franklin, when he comes through the tunnel, through the main gates, he'll sometimes turn and shake hands with me. It makes me feel special. In verse 14, the prophet Isaiah says to Hezekiah afterwards, he, he, the prophet Isaiah comes to him with the word of the Lord. And you notice how the Lord comes to him. He doesn't come to him with immediate condemnation. He comes with questions. According to Isaiah, the Lord says to Hezekiah, where were these men from? What did they say? What did they see? Let me remind you that when God asks questions, he's never looking for information. When God asks questions, he's not looking to be enlightened by us. When God asks questions, he's wanting us to be enlightened about ourselves. He's asking questions to penetrate our hearts, to bring us under conviction, to humble us. Adam, where are you? Peter, do you love me? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Hezekiah responds to the Lord's questions by saying, I showed them everything. I showed them everything. Laid my entire life out in front of them. You could almost sense that he didn't get it at first, but then all of a sudden he almost, it doesn't, the text doesn't say it, but I get the sense there was like an awkward silence there where all of a sudden Hezekiah says, oh my, what have I done? Well, Isaiah responds with a prophecy from God about Hezekiah's family, about Jerusalem. Basically, he says to Hezekiah, everything that you've just shown off is going to be taken away. It's all going to belong to the Babylonian king very soon. Even your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, they're going to be taken away. You're going to be left with nothing. You and the people of Jerusalem... Now, it's interesting, when you look at Hezekiah's response to that, it's puzzling. Matter of fact, a little disturbing. Look at verse 19. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? Now, I know that in first reading, that sounds extremely selfish, self-centered, and callous. But it's interesting, when you read what commentators, much wiser, smarter men than I am, who have studied the scriptures, studied all the scriptures, tried to put all this together, they really debate over whether this was really as self-centered and selfish as it sounds, or whether he really was trying to say something that, we, that is good. Because what the, how a lot of the commentators, I would say most of them that I read, would say what he's really saying is the grace of God here is good because he's delayed his judgment. 
We deserve to be punished immediately for what we've done, but God has been gracious and he's given a delay. And we know from scripture that when God delays, it's an opportunity for repentance and change. I don't know. I don't know if that's really, I mean, honestly, it's hard when you read the words at face value to, to, to read them that way, but that's not really the point. The point of the passage is really found not in this passage. I, remember, I keep saying that in Second Chronicles 32, there's a parallel passage where it tells the same events of Hezekiah's life. But it's interesting, in 2 Chronicles 32, it doesn't tell the details of this visitation from the envoys and Hezekiah's response and his interactions with Isaiah. It doesn't contain any of the details. But it gives an interpretation of the event in one verse. And this is crucial. Let me read it to you. Listen carefully to how 2 Chronicles 32, verse 31, summarizes in one verse what happened in the passage we read earlier. It says, And so... In the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to Hezekiah to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. The whole purpose of this event, the whole reasons that are recorded in Scripture, is that we might understand that God sends success into our lives so that we can be tested, so that we, he, of course, he knows what's in our heart, but the, really the implication is that we might know what's in our heart, that we might repent and trust in him. Success doesn't change us. People say that all the time, but success doesn't change us. What success does is it shows what's within us. It brings to the surface what's really lurking in our hearts. And so when you think about people in your life that have disappointed you, people that you admired, people that, that, that you looked up to, people that you imitated, when they let you down, when they sin, when they fall, don't think it's, that it's success that ruined them. It's not the, the popularity, the fame, the power. You know that old phrase, power corrupts absolutely. It's not the power that did it. The corruption was deep within them. It was already there. What the power did was brought it out. What the fame and popularity did was it brought it out to show not only to us, but to the world, who we really are. Success is a test, just like suffering is a test from the Lord. And I'll say this, in my experience, you can argue with me if you want, but in my experience, it's clearly the case that it's harder to trust in the Lord in the midst of success than it is in the midst of suffering. It's harder to trust in the Lord in the midst of success than it is in the midst of suffering. So how can we prepare then? And you do need to prepare for success. Most of you, uh, you know, you're, you're all at different stages of life, but a large percentage of you are actually in the stage of life where you're preparing for future success. I don't know how you're defining that in terms of your career or your family plans or your financial plans, but you're preparing yourself for success. You're working hard to get to the place that you fulfill the elements of what you consider to be success. For a lot of you, you're there. You're You've, you've worked hard, you've striven, you've, you, you've poured out blood, sweat, and tears, and you've gotten to the place. You're at the pinnacle. You're at a place of success that you'd planned for all your life. Some of you, maybe those days are behind you. Your greatest successes are in the past. And you're really sustaining yourself, maybe, by remembering the success that you've already had. We need a biblical concept of what the purpose of success is, and that's what we see in this passage. How can we prepare for it? Well, I think the example of Hezekiah can... Give us some good examples, maybe not from a positive sense, but maybe from what Hezekiah didn't do to prepare for this. First of all, 
to prepare for success in life, we need to nurture our trust in the Lord. We need to nurture our trust in the Lord. Now, trust in the Lord is something the Lord gives as a gift. Trust in the Lord is really an aspect of what we call faith. And it's a gift from the Lord. None of us has it when we're born. None of us has it before we're born again. It's something that comes when we're, after we're born again. It comes out of that new birth. We have trust in the Lord. We have faith. But once we've been saved, once we've been born again, and we belong to the Lord, what the Holy Spirit's job is to teach us to take that trust that's been given to us as a gift from the Lord and exercise it. Make it stronger. Sustain it. Nurture it. Particularly, in this case, to prepare for success. Did you notice that when Jerusalem was surrounded by the Assyrian soldiers, you remember what Hezekiah did? He got on his face before the Lord, he prayed, and he sought the word of the Lord. The Lord spoke, and the Lord delivered. When Hezekiah was facing death, he got on his face, and he prayed, and he worshiped, and he sought the word of the Lord. And the Lord spoke to him, and he healed him. Here, when he's faced with the temptation of pride because of the opportunity to make an alliance with a world power, Notice he doesn't pray. He doesn't go to the temple to worship. He doesn't seek a word from the Lord. To prepare for either suffering or success, what we need are well-ingrained habits of the soul that will sustain us when life gets either very good or very bad. We need those habits of the soul. And when we talk about habits of the soul, what we're talking about is making regular, faithful, daily use of the means of grace that the Lord has given to the church to increase our faith and to strengthen that faith. Historically, we talk about means of grace, means by which God instills grace within us to to build us up in faith and to deepen our trust. When we talk about that historically... The the, the two big ones, the two main means of grace are the preaching of the word of God and the sacraments. That's how he builds his church. But then we talk about, through history, some secondary means of grace. Things such as prayer, worship, fellowship with God's people, accountability with other believers. These are things that have to be in place. They need to be a part of faithful living so that when success comes, they're there to sustain you, to give, keep maintain within you a biblical worldview, biblical values, and a biblical understanding of your situation. And if you think that when suffering or success comes, well, then I'll get really serious about spending time in the Word and spending time in prayer. Forget it. It doesn't happen that way, does it? When you, especially when you're really successful. Maybe when you're suffering, you might spend intensive times in the Word and prayer for a season. But when you're successful, that's usually the first thing that goes. I'm too busy. I need to work more. I need to plan my financial portfolio. You know, you just don't have time for these things. So there are things, even if you're not successful, if you're still planning for future success, there are things you need to be doing today to be prepared to make sure that you trust in the Lord when success comes. These means of grace are meant to soften our hearts, renew our minds, and teach us to depend upon the Lord. And we must be consistent in seeking them and using them to strengthen our faith. 
Secondly, we need to maintain a healthy distrust in fallen man. We need to maintain a healthy distrust in fallen man. And if if your perspective becomes too worldly, it's very easy to lose that distrust. We have such a tendency to look to the rich, the powerful, and the influential people of this world or even just of our lives. And we see this in every era of Scripture. Matter of fact, Isaiah speaks of another tendency. The people tended to to look to Assyria. Sometimes the people of God looked to uh, Babylon. In, In Isaiah 31, the people were looking to Egypt, the other great world power. And this is what Isaiah says to the people of God there. He says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. The more biblically literate you are, the less naive you are going to be about the sinfulness of the human heart. And I'm talking about human hearts both outside the church and inside the church because there's still a lot of that sinfulness that lingers in all of us. In Jeremiah 17, verses 8 and 9, we read part of that earlier where it talks about blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water. It sends out its root by the stream. We don't realize that, that sounds like Psalm 1 does and actually very similar to Psalm 1, but it's, actually, it's the verse that immediately precedes verse 9, which you're probably more familiar with, which says... The heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Trust in the Lord and be blessed. Maintain distrust in the heart of man because of its sinfulness. Remember how Jesus responded when his ministry was successful by world standard, by the world standards early in his ministry? When people were flocking to him desperately wanting to be healed and listening and hanging on every word he had to say? There's wonderful insight into the mind of Christ during that popular, famous part of his ministry that's in John chapter 2. Let me read to you where John tells us what was going on inside the mind and heart of Jesus at this time. It says, now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, this is John 2 verse 23. When Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It's exactly what we've been saying. Fame, popularity, power in this world didn't mean anything to Jesus. We need to be careful not to trust in it, too. Now, again, I'm not asking you, I'm not encouraging you to be cynical. (laughs) I'm not encouraging you to be paranoid about the people around you. We need to trust people to a certain degree, but that certain degree is the tricky part. We need to trust our wives, our husbands. We need to trust our bosses. We need to trust our political leaders. But we need to be cautious. We need to be constantly aware of the insidiousness of sin and the power of sin at work in their hearts and in our own hearts. Praise God, our born-again brothers and sisters in Christ are growing in trustworthiness by God's grace. If you know Christ, you're growing in trustworthiness. But if you're like me, and I know you are, you have a very, very, very long way to go before you are fully trustworthy. 
we need to be cautious and only trust in the Lord ultimately. And then thirdly, we need to focus on God's glory and not our own. That sounds like a cliche, but it's so crucial when it comes to preparing for success. Because so many things in this life are training us to pursue our own glory. We need to actively counteract that spiritually by consciously working and disciplining ourselves to seek the glory of the Lord and not our own. Hezekiah got carried away in trying to impress other sinners with his glory. And he failed to glorify a God in all things like we're taught to do in scripture. Did you notice in verse 13 where it talks about this tour that he gave to the envoys from Babylon around the city of Jerusalem? Did you notice? It listed the places he took them. The palace, the storehouses, the armory. What's missing? The temple. Now I know they were pagans so they couldn't have gone into much of the temple. But what should Hezekiah have done? Why had God put him on the throne in Judah? Why had God made him a light on a hill to the nations? It was to point people to God's glory, not to his own. That's why God made him wealthy and powerful. It was to give glory to God. Why didn't Hezekiah take the envoys To look at the temple and say, look at this. By God's grace, he has chosen us to be his people and he's chosen to meet with us here in this place. And you see all that blood flowing in the courts of the temple? You know what that blood is? That's the blood of perfect sacrifices. Because that teaches that the wages of sin is death and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. But God provides sacrifices so that our sins can be atoned for, so that we can be reconciled to God. Why didn't he go in? Why didn't he do this? That would be giving glory to God and not to himself. The cure for our tendency, our very strong tendency towards self-glorification is to be continually training ourselves towards God-glorification with our life. We are where we are, whether we're in suffering or success, we're there to point people to the glories of Jesus Christ. If you're given suffering in this world, you can know for sure that God's purpose in your suffering is for you to glorify him by the joy in him, the hope in him, the trust in him that others see in you while you suffer. But if you're successful in this life, you know the same thing. That you are successful in this life. That God has done it. It's his test for your heart. So that by trusting in him. And hoping in him in your success. And giving him the glory. And not taking it to yourself. You can be a vivid testimony. To the goodness of the God that we serve. I'm a big baseball fan. And I really didn't care much for this. World Series because I didn't like either one of the teams. But I still watched a lot of it. But, you know, there's a guy that was on the Chicago Cubs, one of our dastardly rivals. But he was was on the Chicago Cubs, and in spite of being on the Cubs, I was interested in him because I read during the playoffs, I didn't know this, I've heard his his name, he's been around forever on other teams, but I read during the playoffs that Ben Zobrist is not only a professing Christian, but also one that's highly admired and, and a lot of great testimonies to the, the quality of this guy's life and the impact that he's having on the people around him. And then as I watched the series conclude and I saw that he had been 
voted to be the most valuable player of the World Series, one of the greatest World Series ever played, as they say. I thought, you know how I responded to that? I immediately, because I was preparing this message, I said, Lord, please help Ben Zobrist to pass his test of success. He's been given a platform. What's he going to do with it? In an election year full of bad news, there have been some light moments. How could you not laugh at some of the things? Maybe shaking your head sadly, but laughing at what's been going on. For instance, one news service facetiously reported that the Queen of England had sent a message, had actually given an address to the American people as our election was proceeding. And supposedly what she had said was, This 240-year experiment in self-rule began with the best of intentions, but I think we can all agree now that it hasn't ended well. (laughs) And supposedly she went on to say that she wanted to urge the Americans to write in her name on Election Day, (laughs) after which the transition to British rule could begin with a minimum of bother. We need a king. We don't act like it. We don't live like it. But at the very core of us, somehow we even understand, we need a king. As I thought about why do we need a king, I thought of four reasons. First of all, we need a king because we can't control our circumstances. We try really hard. But we can't control our circumstances. We need a king who's sovereign. We need a king who's able to control our circumstances, and we end up crying out to earthly leaders to do that, but there's only one king who can control our circumstances. We need a king also because we can't provide for ourselves ultimately. Sure, we can meet our own needs to a certain degree, but ultimately we can't provide for ourselves the things that we need. Thirdly, we need a king because we can't keep our own rules And we can't enforce our rules on other people. So we need a king with good, just rules who can enforce them. And finally, we need a king because we need to be saved and we can't save ourselves. The forces against us are way too strong. Not just the earthly forces, but the spiritual forces against us. The power of sin is too strong. Death is way too strong. We can't save ourselves. We need a king who can save us. All our leaders will disappoint us. They will all let us down. I will let you down. Your elders will let you down. Your civil leaders will let you down. There's only one leader who won't ever let you down, and that's Jesus Christ. He will never fail you. He will never disappoint you. Jesus Christ, who left his throne in heaven to take upon himself human flesh and dwell in our midst and keep his perfect law and then go to the cross as that atoning sacrifice, that sacrifice where he bore the cost, the penalty that all of our distrust, all of our selfishness, all our self-glorification deserves. He took it upon himself and paid for it in full. And then he 
having died for us, conquered death, conquered sin, not only the power of sin, but the penalty of sin. And he was raised from the dead, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, and there he sits on the throne as the sovereign God of all, who controls every one of the circumstances in our lives, who provides for every need we have in life, the one who has kept the law and teaches us and enables us to keep his law, and the one who saves us and will save us completely from all of the enemies opposed to us. Whether you're in a period of sufferings or enter into sufferings or entering into a period of success, understand that God's purpose in it is to test you. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Do you really? Are you prepared for that? Let's pray. Father, as we now leave the feast of your word and prepare to go to the feast of the Lord's table, we ask that you would use these blessed means of grace to not only strengthen faith, but to give great glory to yourself as we express that faith in coming to you. Jesus Christ is our risen Lord. He is our King. He is the King of kings. We look to him today to provide for us, to save us, to draw us to himself. It's such a joy to approach his royal table. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.